everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Coach's Corner University podcast. I'm your host, Paul O'Need, and today I am joined by a friend of mine, Dylan Seeley, doctor of chiropractic. Uh, Dylan and I met a few weeks ago at a mastermind in Washington, D.C., hit it off right away, and uh, I could tell he was just someone I vibe with and I think has a ton to offer the audience here at Coach's Corner University. So Dylan, welcome to the podcast, man. Pleasure to have, uh, pleasure to be on, man. I'm excited for it. Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned kind of before we started, the podcast is pretty much aimed at coaches, uh, for, from coaches to coaches. And I think you as a clinician and a coach provide a really unique perspective. Uh, the people that I know who know you speak really highly of you. So I kind of want to open the floor a little bit, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, how you got to where you are and what do you think makes you so special, man? I don't know if I'm that special, but um, <laughs> that's what they all say. I would say I've had a kind of like an interesting journey to where I'm at and that pretty much none of it was planned. Like usually people have a goal set of like where they want to be with their life and I'm just been winging it as I go. Um, that's, honestly, though, I'm going to stop you because it's so common. Every every person I've spoken to who's like, we'll say top in their field, they're like, I just went and did shit that I loved. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it. Like, and it wasn't even, none of it's on purpose. Like the one thing that I actually wanted to do, someone was like, no, nah, I'm not going to like, let you stay here and do that. And it was Cav. It was coached <laughs> like Justin Cavanaugh. Yeah. Um. So I interned for Cav as a teenager. Cause I was like, I have no direction in my life. Like I was, a, I was a pretty good baseball player coming out of high school, okay. but I just had such, you know, bad problems with authority and staying out of trouble that I kind of pissed away a lot of those opportunities um and from there I was like well I don't really know what I want to you know do so um I went to like junior college to essentially try and play baseball and by the time I got there and I was like I don't know if I really want to play baseball anymore like it doesn't excite me mm -hmm. um so I came back home and then I had to figure out you know what am I going to do with my life and I was always interested in training athletes on the on the workout side of things because I got a an exercise physiology textbook as a Christmas present like which is the lamest fucking gift you can think of when you're like 17 but it was something I really wanted listen that gift probably changed your life man oh yeah um and that just kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of like working out. So I got into it really deep. I got into like the Poliquin stuff when I was like 17. So I hit that rabbit hole fairly quick. Um, and then just kind of branched off and I was like, well, I want to just train athletes. So when I came back home after a semester, I'm like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to, you know, shoot off a bunch of, um, you know, resumes over to some training companies that are in the area. And I got, um, I got a call back from Cav um, about it. And the worst part was, is he called me at like six o'clock at night and I was just about to hit the gym and I took the original like jacked formula, which like if anybody knows, yeah. So imagine having an interview with that on that. And I'm just it's like, basically legal math. yeah. So I'm like on another fucking planet while he's trying to have a conversation with me. And it's literally just like, yep. Uh-huh. Good. Yep. Perfect. Like he's probably like, this guy's a fucking idiot, but I'm going to bring him in anyway. And I showed up, oh, like interned with him for the day. And then, you know, I stuck around with him for probably shit. I don't know how long it's been now. Almost like going on 12 years now I've been with him. Like on, you, on still, you still consult for cap, right? Yeah. Like I still like help him out with stuff. He helps me out with a whole bunch of stuff. So now it's kind of less of me like mooching off of him and more of me actually being able to, you know, kind of have a symbiotic relationship with him. So it's been, it's been super cool. 
Um, so yeah, I did that. I got into the athletes training side of things. Um, and then I was playing rugby as well during that time, like while interning for him, got a scholarship, uh, to Wheeling university or it was Wheeling Jesuit at the time and played there. We had a fairly good team. And then, um, going into my last, well, that's when I first started to rack up injuries. We'll kind of start off with that. Yeah. Um, I tore, um, I had an avulsion fracture, so I tore my hamstring off the bone, which then nicked a piece of the bone off with it. From your pelvis? Um, huh? Yeah. From your from pelvis? pelvis. Oh. Yeah. So I got a nice little dent and I didn't even realize it at the time, like when it happened. So I just took like five days off and then just went back to training like normal. And my leg was always kind of stiff. Sounds about right. And then from there, uh, we went to... Like we got into training camp and our old strength conditioning coach was a uh, like former green beret. So everything was just like, we're going to run you into the ground, yep. like as you know, efficiently as possible. And I ended up with a stress fracture in my femur. And then I got upper respiratory like infections, like all throughout training camp. Cause we were just so overtrained And the nutrition we had for the school was like dog shit. Cause I found out that the school was like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So they bought the cheapest meal plan. So there was like no nutrition in any of that food we were getting. Like you would just feel more sick if you ate. So a lot of us would just skip eating meals and we would try and like find something at the grocery store that was like, that wouldn't perish in our dorm room. So, so that was like tuna and microwave uncle Ben's pretty much. That's what I lived off of like for, you know, a couple of years in school. Um, so yeah, that was an absolute nightmare played with a stress fracture in my femur until it kind of calmed down, like, which it really did. And I played with it for like two months and I was like, what's the worst thing that can happen? They're like, well, it can break. And I'm like, well, we'll you know, we'll cross that road when we get there. Um, luckily it never broke but um following year dislocated my shoulder um and it got to the point where it was just so loose we'd go for a jog and it would like pop right back out um yeah it was pretty it was a pretty gnarly one but uh the reason i started to rack up some of these injuries is because like of the not necessarily the overtraining it was just i was underfeeding like we when i came into school like i was a little meathead and like I had enough, I mean, I kind of equated to having like body armor. Like that's the whole reason we lift, you know, to play. Yeah, it makes you a better athlete, but it keeps you healthier in the long run. And um, when I got to school, I think I dropped like 20 pounds. Oh my God. So, I mean, just taking contact after contact just kind of beats the shit out of you. So mm -hmm. I ended up getting a shoulder surgery. Um, surgery was like completely, I asked for one thing. The surgeon gave me something. We agreed on it. And then after i woke up from surgery told me he did something completely different to it dude the same thing happened to me oh, i was a nightmare so first practice back i'm oh, not even first practice back i was doing tricep pushdowns my shoulder shot right out the back oh, like, the back. Everything. yeah during oh, a tricep pushdown <laughs> like i'm like what the fuck did so he put it in there with like duct tape yeah well they didn't i asked for anchors i'm like the moment i hit somebody this thing's gonna pop right back out and they're like no you should be okay and of course like when you go to the university setting, like you're not necessarily getting like the best rehab unless you're at like a big time school. Right. Like, and I wasn't. So it was like, you kind of get what you get. And that just caused a whole host of issues. Like I still have it to this day. I have like nerve damage on the back of my shoulder. So it's like, if I try and like touch, like I don't have my tricep is not nearly as prominent on my left compared to my right. Like, and if I touch like this part of my shoulder, like I can't really feel it. Great. Um, yeah. Well, I also got the issue of having um, like thoracic outlet syndrome because when how my shoulder set like this after the surgery, because I had me in the sling for so long that the scalenes hypertrophied here. So it essentially like pinches off 
like right, on the brachial plexus. Yeah. Oh. So anytime I do um, like dumbbell incline curls after like a second set, like my hand just completely loses feeling. So it's kind of handicapped, like where I'm at lifting wise with some of the things you can still train around it. Okay. But we're um, an inclusive podcast. We prefer the term <laughs> handicapable. So, <laughs> so I got um. I played there and I was like, I'm pretty much done. Like, I don't want to play anymore after mm-hmm. all this shit. Um, so I took some time off. My buddy who we came in, we both played at the same time, later became like a grad assistant. He was a coach. Okay. And he had been through, he had played at a higher level than I ever had. He played like professionally in South Africa, like in Australia, all this oh, stuff. Wow. Um, and then he's originally from like Australia. So then once his career, he popped an Achilles and he was like, well, my career is pretty much over. I'm just going to come to the U S and just play college ball, which like all the, you know, internationals kind of do when they realize they can't play at the pro level anymore. Right. Um, so he, we kind of had like a heart to heart. He kind of talked me through a lot of that stuff and then convinced me to come back and play for like one last year. I'm like, all right, I'll do that. And then I got the itch. I'm like, I'm actually enjoying it again. It's fun. I'm not hurting as much because I didn't have a, like my goal was always to have something in place. Like I wanted to be an All-American or I wanted to get it to the next thing or to the next thing. The problem is, is like all my goals were ex- like extrinsically motivated. Mm-hmm. So what happens when I hit that next goal? I go, shit, I got nothing to look forward to again. And yeah. then I had to reset. So it wasn't me necessarily chasing something inside of me. It was just, well, I got to do the next thing. I got to do the next thing. Well, now when I realize I'm never probably going to get to that next thing, all the motivation goes away. Yeah, what do you do? It's a dark hole. Yeah. So then I switched over to more of like an intrinsically motivated mindset and everything just became so much better. Um, and then from there, I got a scholarship to chiropractic school for rugby, like ironically enough. Um, but right before, I'd never been to a chiropractor in my life, right? So I had no idea what I was really getting really? into. Really? Then why chiropractic yeah. school? Just because I wanted to go on and continue to do things. So there's where Cav comes in. Cav told me he wouldn't hire me back until I got a doctorate in something. So I said, oh, shit, and I got to start looking at stuff. So I started looking at med school, and then I was looking at, you know, exercise science things and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what, I can do, like, uh, physical therapy because there's a university right next to the gym. They had a branch campus. So I'm like, perfect, I'm just going to go do that. Um, well, I didn't realize that when you apply to the physical therapy schools, you have to apply to an agency, which then sends off all your transcripts and everything else. So there's a middleman. So by the time my stuff hit the middleman and the middleman sent it off, the deadline had already passed. Right. So now I'm like, oh, I've got nothing, like, set up. And then I was playing in a rugby tournament and there was a chiropractor there and he's, you know, he's, you're good enough. We can get you a scholarship at the school. So went out there, had a practice session with them and then they offered me on the spot, but yeah, never been to a chiropractor in my life. I was like, well, give it a go. Um, <laughs> okay. So obviously just winging it as we go. Yep. Um, yeah. And then from there, but the, I want to say a month before I went in, I had a, I got cheap shot in the game. So I cracked a couple of ribs Okay. And I ended up um, fracturing. I got a spondy. So I ended up fracturing like my low back. Oh, geez. And I didn't realize it until I was doing reverse hypers the next day. And then I felt a big crack. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. So then I went, I was like, well, this feels odd. I'm just going to go do some hamstring curls. I got on one of the hamstring curls where it's like the prone one, but the hips are popped up a little bit. Yep. And I laid on it and it must've caused enough separation into what was going on that I was like, I couldn't feel my legs. I was paralyzed. I had, had my buddy like drag me off of the thing um it's just to get up scary. off of it um and but i didn't want to lose my scholarship so i didn't tell anybody and i tried playing through it for about two years and it got to the point where it was so bad that i was um like we would do fitness tests and i would just get such a low back pump because it was so unstable mm-hmm. that i would pretty much like 
lose all feeling on my legs to the point where I couldn't even lift up my leg anymore. Like my hip flexors were just gone. I was in such a spasm that I would just fall flat on my face. And I would lay there for about five minutes, the pump would go away and then I could go back to practice. Like it was just crazy. And I remember, you know, going to doctors and being like, I just need like, you know, enough pain pills to make it through this weekend's game or this is that. So it got to the point where it was like, I was actively seeking out shit that was going to destroy me. And then when I couldn't get the pain pills, I'm like, well, I'll just drink until I can fall asleep and then kind of let it go away, which just dug me into this nasty hole. Um, Cause you just feel kind of like helpless. You got all these people and nothing or nothing's really helping you. And it's not until, you know, I found like Eric Serrano and he kind of looked at my stuff and he was like, Oh yeah, I can see the fracture there. And everybody had kind of missed it along the way. So then we, we started playing around with like, you know, using peptides to kind of help heal that spot. And then I had to seek out a bunch of different people like where this is where I consulted with uh, David Gray, mm -hmm. who's now blown up. My claim to fame is I knew David when he only had like 2000 Instagram followers. So <laughs> um, now he's like a multimillionaire with a yacht probably. But um, no, Dave's the man. He's helped me out tremendously. But um, I had a consult with him for my low back and he was rehabbing me. And at the end of the consult, he goes, anything else you want to ask? And I said, yeah, how do I become you? You know, how do right. I get to be where you're at? And he said, you know, here's all the like the people I've learned from. Here's the courses I've taken. Like, here's my thought process behind stuff. And I said, perfect. So literally as I got off that call, like I paid, like I paid for one of the courses that he had taken. So I started out with Gary Ward. And I learned all the things about the foot that I possibly could. And then from there, I signed up with Dave O'Sullivan, who's the head physiotherapist for England rugby mm -hmm. um, and did a, a mentorship under him, like learned as much as I could from him. And he is like absolutely phenomenal how he incorporates all of his systems together. Um, and then from there, like I learned like blood flow restriction training under Mario Novo. I did some like dry needling stuff, I, you know, pretty much you name it. I've gone to try and learn it from somebody because I realized that, you know, nothing works every time, but something works every time. And it only takes like yeah. that one, that one thing to help that one person to make it all worth it. Like I might not agree with necessarily what the course instructor is like teaching or how they say it, but if that thing works, it's worth, you know, it's weight and gold to that person that's been struggling their whole life. Well, no one has all the answers, right? And exactly. that's like, it's one thing that, so I come from a sports performance background. So I was, a, I was a collegiate strength coach for about five years uh, until I transitioned out interned and, and learned from like 20 or 30 people that I would call on a regular basis. We're talking like head strength coaches at Penn state, you know, uh, like I was at Robert Morris, I was at South Florida, you know, I know coaches at Villanova, Georgetown, like all these places. And to be able to, no one does the same thing. And, and I've always been of the mind that if no one does the same thing, there is no right way. Exactly. There is there is the appropriate way for, you know, do the best you can with what you have, where you're at. And you can only do that if you have a toolbox to pull from that has tools that fit in different spots. Cause if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. Exactly. And, and it's, it, sorry yeah, not ahead, to catch you off, but um, right, like, that's a, like, that's such a prominent thing now within the realm of like physical therapy and chiropractic and everybody else, like everyone's trying to be right. And they're willing to like shit on someone else's system. Like, even if it gets the result and, and that's that, the yeah. biggest, it's the biggest push right now where it's like, we've learned so much about, I, I think I just made an Instagram post about this, but we learned so much about pain science that like, we've kind of written off like other things along the way, like biomechanical aspects of pain or other things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you can take a biomechanical approach and it actually fixes up someone's pain. Right. But then if you, if you talk to someone about that and they're like, well, 
no, you know, it's all on the brain. It's not put of the brain. You got to talk to them this way, do this stuff. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as that. Like, yeah, I incorporate the pain science aspect into things, but uh, your patient doesn't give a shit about that. And I think the funniest thing I've ever had was I had a patient come in. She was getting seen by um, a lot of doctors at Ohio State mm-hmm. University because I live in Columbus, Ohio. Right. And they're like the big medical system around here. Mm-hmm. And every person they saw, the big thing is like uh, hurt doesn't equal harm. Like physical therapists, chiropractors, you know, people who are really entrenched in the pain science love to say that hurt doesn't equal harm. Well, if everything you do hurts, you're not going to want to fucking do it. Right. So I had uh, the lady came up to me and she, you, the first thing I, you know, going through the intake and the first thing she stops me and she says, if you tell me hurt doesn't equal harm, I'm just going to walk the fuck out. <laughs> and I go, Good for I her. completely understand where you're coming from because I was told the same thing and it didn't do shit for me. Yeah. I like, I saw that post and that post resonated with me a lot because again, no one has all the answers. So if you look to pain science, cognitive behavioral therapy, and more of like a psycho psychological approach, it's like, yeah, you can make a huge impact, but if you ignore the fact that this thing hurts and you just talk to them as if they're crazy, like we're missing the boat and you can do something wrong for so long it doesn't matter how you talk to somebody. If you don't address that movement pattern with the biomechanics, you're not going to get any results. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's just such a, a gigantic frustration because there's people who blend it really well, but like, it's not the pain science thing isn't sexy to talk about. And it's not something like, it's something we overcomplicate a lot of the time with people. Agreed. Um, like you're one of your fellow Canadians, Craig Lehman, like nails it when he talks about, it. it's just like a bucket full of water. Like you keep adding these little stressors of water into the bucket and eventually your bucket overflows. And now you notice the pain, but like biomechanics is one of those stressors that's in that bucket of water. Oh, without question. And, and like, so when you look at your, your educational background leading to this point where you're able to number one, communicate with this person in front of you and empathize with their situation because of your own experiences, but then have a bucket of tools to pull from where you don't have to use the same tools as those other doctors. You can do other things because I, I think it was Dr. Trevor Cashy who I had on, on the podcast in its previous iteration. And have you ever spoken to Trevor Cashy? Do you know? No. Okay. So he is probably the biggest stickler for language I've ever met in my entire life. And he's like, I really don't like differentiating people between athletes and general population because everyone is a person. Yeah. And, and that kind of stuck with me in this context, because if you treat a person like an athlete or vice versa, you can actually set yourself apart in the way that this person feels that they're being communicated with. Cause at the end of the day, performance is relative. Mm. You're talking about a mother who is in so much pain, she can't play with her son or her daughter, or you're talking to, you know, uh, Dak Prescott, who now can't take three steps back or throw a pass. That function relative to that individual is still performance. So being able to unlock whatever it is within that person's mind that's limiting their abilities. And like, my mind is going a million miles an hour because you just hit on so many of the, you know, the pain points because you know, I'm in the education field. And one thing I refuse to do is say that I'm right. Because there's no context in which I'm right all the time. Exactly. And I mean, when I so I taught at the university level too. um, And I got into 
like some of the stuff with my students and it's like i might use this approach so i laid out programming i did for one of my guys and i said you know i might use this approach and then the next year i might think it's garbage just because i've improved my knowledge well you should yeah i'm like just because i you know i think as we continue to go we're always we should be you know striving to you know continually improve and what i look back on i'm like you know this is terrible and then sometimes i look back at programs from like eight years ago and i'm like that's actually not that bad i didn't know what i was doing but it didn't suck like it was honestly probably better than some of the ones i did five years ago <laughs> well and what if it worked yeah right like i've gotten a lot of people really strong doing things a certain way like i used to be purely like west side conjugate then i transitioned into more like highly specific Eastern block type type programming. Now I have my own kind of spin on things, but at the end of the day, all of those systems got people stronger. Yeah. So is one better than the other? The way that I describe it with people a lot of times is like all roads lead to Rome. It's just how many potholes are along the way. I like that a lot. Yeah. What's going to break, what's going to break me down. Like for some people, if I, you know, if, if they can tolerate a shit ton of, you know, like volume and lifting, like, you know, we might throw a West side style, like conjugate at them, or we might throw something else. If I've got someone who has minimal lifting experience, like we might throw in some, you know, some lighter side of things, more gamification style stuff of just kind of like micro dosing their lifts, get in and get out. So like, again, it's just kind of like fitting it to the person. Yeah. I love that. So let's chat a little bit more about, you know, your approach to rehab. Um, in one thing that, you know, you mentioned Greg Lehman talking about drops of water in a bucket, these stressors that build up over time. It seemed like, you know, going through your injury history, we can draw a lot of parallels between that and that you showed up, you showed up to school, you had a small, like we'll call it a smaller injury that led, then you overloaded your system with more work, less nutrition, school stress, had a bigger injury, and then it just seemed to add up. What is it about, you know, your current approach that kind of feeds off of your experiences and how do you have that conversation with a client, whether on the rehab side or the training side about stress management? Like, how do you address that, that puzzle piece? It's just getting them to recognize like what's going on. Like, uh, and that's, you know, kind of touching back on what I said in my uh, talk at Cavs place, like my, the name of my clinic is like Inferno performance and rehab. Cause it's based off of Dante's Inferno. Like Dante had Virgil to guide him to help recognize like all these ailments of society. And like, that's essentially my job too, is to be like your Virgil in this rehab process to kind of guide you along to recognize, you know, things that might be hindering you, like getting in the way of like, what's making you better. Like I tell people like, I don't make you better. Like you make you better. Right. I had a, I had a girl, she, was in um she's at the olympic training center for wrestling like phenomenal wrestler um had a neck injury and went through two years of rehab with the olympic training staff and was only getting worse and they were like we're gonna operate on you so she flew out here to see my father-in-law and i and then we both worked on her and within a week we got the pain and everything to go away and she was back normal right and she's had this for two years um and you know, she was he's thankful saying like, oh, you fixed it. I'm like, I didn't fix anything. I literally just, you know, sat on a medicine ball and ate a sandwich and told you what to do in the gym. Like you were the one who was doing all the stuff. Like I was just kind of hanging out telling you what to do. Right? right. So I can't do the work for you. And, you know, people get so caught up in that where they think like someone else is going to fix them. Like we're always looking for something else to fix the answer. And it's like, we can't do that if we don't look at ourselves first. And then we have to, you know, take into account, like we have to recognize like what's getting in our way is our sleeps like shitty. 
right? I'm not going to heal great if my sleep's shitty. Like, what's mm-hmm. my blood sugar level, right? If diabetics heal poorly, so if you're eating like shit, don't expect to you know be healing a herniated disc very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know, you, again, like the sleep and then the the blood sugar nutrition side of things, like what's our stress at work? Like, what are the the things that we can control and what are the things that we can't, right? And I lay it out as like, what are I, I tell people like I draw out a chart for them. So essentially like I put it in three spaces and we leave the middle blank. It's like, what do I not have control over? What do I have control over? And then in the middle, I have them write, what can I influence from the things that I don't have control over? Mm. If I can have influence over the thing that I don't control over, ultimately I have control over it because right. I can influence right. it. I can influence the decision. So sometimes people come at like, you know, come to me and they're like, they got this roadblock in their head. Well, it's like, well, I can't, you know, fix this. I can't deal with this. And I'm like, well, you actually have an influence on it. So it's up to you whether you want to act upon it. And once we start to reframe that mindset, I think it helps them tremendously. Um, you know, just You're a chiropractor. Mind. You're supposed to crack people. You're supposed right. to touch them. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the other funny thing I get to is I have so many people come to me and they don't know that I'm a chiropractor. Like, I think... I've had people refer to me as like their psychologist. Uh, people refer to me as like their, that one a lot. Uh, their, their physical therapist or their pain doctor. And I'm like, nah, dude, I'm just the chiropractor, but I can do all the cool shit. But um, yeah, so it's just kind of funny. Like you wear everyone's hat. So you're kind of a jack of all trades and people don't really know how to label you. That's a really, okay. So I've had a lot of really interesting conversations about locus of control because it's one thing that... <laughs> Listen, it's really easy to admit fault when something's outside your control. Like just using nutrition as an example. If I believe that nutrition is complicated and I can't get the results that I want, whether it's, let's just say weight loss. If I can't lose weight, well, it's because nutrition's complicated. It's not because I failed at something. But then in the same breath, when people have successes, they're like, this person got me that. So they externalize, they externalize their failures, but they also externalize their successes. It takes a lot to be able to unlock in the person that internal locus of control to say, hey, I can influence these factors that I thought were outside my control. But then what you're also doing in this breath by saying like, hey, I didn't do anything, you did the work, is you're trying to establish within them that internal locus of control over their successes so they build evidence and now their self-efficacy goes up. And then when their self-efficacy goes up, now we have this you know, compounding effect on their results over time. That takes a lot of buy-in. So if someone's, that's, a lo- that's also a lot of work. And mm. it's a lot of work that doesn't necessarily have a direct ROI in the moment. Like if someone comes to see you, Thought process would be, I need to make this person feel better today so that they come back and continue the process, that little win. How do you go about getting the buy-in from the person in front of you when what you're really, you know, similar to some of the business talks that we talked about, it's like, you're, you want to offer results. You want to offer this solution. But when the solution's within the person and contingent on their effort, that's a tough sell. Yeah. I tell people like we don't get, I literally just had a talk with a patient about this the other day. So she more than likely like needs a a shoulder surgery. Right. Um, But she's in her fifties. Like she's got some hormonal issues. She's got a whole bunch of shit going on. 
and she doesn't want the shoulder surgery. So I'm literally her last stop. She's seen like a handful of like some of the best physical therapists in like Columbus. Um, you know, she's seen some high level, you know, orthos, everyone's kind of telling her the same thing. And apparently I'm the guy that can prevent what's going on. Um, she's and- fine. If you're the guy, <laughs> she's fine. <laughs> so we had a talk the other day because I've seen her like twice now. And when she first came to see me, like the moment she started to lift her arm, like she winched in pain. Right. But her biggest goal was she goes, I want to be able to like unhook my bra and not have like sharp shooting shoulder pain. That was it. That's like one of her big things. Um, and I said, okay, like we just reversed engineer the process. Right. So of like, how do I get, you know, what are the motions that go into making this up? Right. So then I, you I, bought I, her I front at, clipping bras and yeah, sent her on her way. That's what it is. And you just spin it around. Yeah. Um, so we get into this process, what I told her, I'm like, the things that I really care about are like, we don't, I don't want you to become hyper-focused on your pain, but I want to know like, what's the duration, what's the frequency, what's the intensity day-to-day stuff. I'm like, but I, and then I want you to journal it. And the reason like, I want you to journal your pain and like your journey is because I want you, like we get so caught up on the process and it's or not on the process on the, on the outcome and it's binary. It's yes or no, did it happen or did it not happen? And right. if it didn't happen, then you view it as a failure. But like nobody views the process like as, you know, a a path to getting that outcome. They're only just focused on that outcome. And if you only ever focus on the outcome, you're always going to be frustrated until you hit that outcome. And it might be weeks. It might be months until you hit that outcome. So I said, hey, I just want you to journal it. And I want you to you know take note of like, what's it like? Because you might have had two shitty days in a row before you came to see me and be like, oh, it sucks. I'm not getting any better. But if if you had five good days leading up to those two shitty days, like that's a really good sign. Mm-hmm. and then she was like oh yeah like and she's like that makes sense and then she lifts up her arms i'm like well did that hurt when you just agreed with me she's like no why and i'm like you just lifted your arms higher than what you did last time and had no pain doing it meanwhile when you first came in here and you tried to lift your arms more than two inches you had a sharp shooting pain she goes oh yeah i guess that's right and the key is just taking those small wins mm-hmm. um i listened to there's a uh, i was at ali gilbert's silverback summit and they had a navy seal that was talking and he was essentially breaking down um he was on a on a ruck and he was just feeling like absolutely defeated because people were getting so far ahead of him people were starting to catch up to him and he was absolutely exhausted because he was so focused on the outcome of reaching like the end of the ruck and he goes i just reframed my mindset i said all i have to do is just put one foot in front of the other that's it that's my next goal just to put one foot in front of the next and he goes i just did that over and over and over i just kept my head down and looked at my feet and he said eventually i just started passing people right because he got fixated on the process no longer on the outcome and the outcome you know was achieved so much faster i like that um what about okay so that i like that because you've essentially reframed the wins away from honestly away from something objective right like it's not binary if you feel better right but creating that awareness through journaling or through um or even through like tracking can have a, a profound effect i mean we see that all the time with with progressions and training like that's one of the things that i switched recently like i used to be super old school we're talking excel spreadsheet here's your program we're going to talk in whatsapp about it yeah but i don't need to see your data because i don't care then i started having clients more accurately track and tracking that i could see and simply by doing that progressions were faster progressions were more linear as opposed to undulating and not only that, their buy-in 
increased. And it was just through a change in awareness. Can you speak a little bit to like, everything you're saying to me is counter to what you would think traditional physical therapy or chiropractic is like pretty much. Yeah, dude, that's not, that's not how chiropractors approach problems. The 90% of people, you know, the reason I sent that message in the group the other day is because one of my clients went to go see a Cairo and they tried to sell them on 30 sessions. He's like, fuck that. I don't need 30 sessions. My shoulder hurts. Um, how do you address that? I mean, that's gotta be a huge barrier for you. I think the thing for me is like setting the expectation ahead of time. Like what is the timeline for this injury? And I lay out like the natural history. Like, so for instance, like I had a, one of my fighters, um, like got injured, like in his day-to-day job, um, and had to get a shoulder surgery done. Right. So like, what is the expectation on coming back from this surgery? Right. His expectation is I want to be back fighting in the cage. Right. Um, his next, you know, the next thing is what's the natural history of this injury? Well, he had a, like a clavicular osteotomy. So you're looking at about eight to 12 weeks, like for a full, like, you know, back to normal. And then he can kind of start working out again and getting back into the heat of things. Right. Okay. Um, he was fighting at week eight. Like we essentially smashed that timeline because we set these little things in place and he was completely healed up. He went to his, he went to the ortho at like three and a half weeks out from the surgery and they got cleared to be, go back to work. All right. So for me, it's like having the expectation of what's going on. And then my goal is always to beat the natural history. And then I'm going to use the the techniques and the technology that I have to make sure that we beat that. Um, but it's also like holding people accountable, like within that thing. And I go not so much. So that's the other tricky thing with like the chiropractic side of things with tracking the objective markers is very insurance based. So that's why it becomes such a heavy fixation. And since I'm not, I can be a little bit more personable with you so know, you have, have a, like purely private practice. Yeah. Good for you. Um, but the other thing is, is like sometimes people try and sell you the packages. And I just had a talk with my old boss about this yesterday because that's how they had their structured. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've kind of moved away from that. And I've just moved into here's how many sessions you can get like for the month. And I just tier it like you can have, you know, this many, this many or this many. Like, and it just goes into like that overall fee. Right. And, it, and it's more so like, I don't want to say, you know, if it's, I think 30 sessions is a bit ridiculous. Most people like selling tens. Um, but when you get into this, it's like, if you didn't get that result within those 10 visits, like that person's going to be pissed off. So I kind of reframed yeah. it into like a monthly like thing. And the goal is, is like, I tell people like, yeah, like we're setting it for the monthly, but if you do all your shit, I don't have to see you that frequently. If you don't want to pay me a bunch of money, do all the shit that I tell you to do. And you're going to get better a hell of a lot faster. And then you don't Dude, have to spend I money. Fuck man. I'm so glad you said that because I literally had this conversation with a, a great friend of mine. She's one of my business, business mentees. She runs a purely hybrid practice now. So she'll see people periodically in person, but all of her stuff is online. And the one that her selling point is, I'm going to hold you accountable outside of my office. So you don't have to come into my office. It's going to be cheaper in the long run for us to do it this way. And you'll get more access to me. And the thing is, people are getting better results than they would if they were seeing her in person, because now they don't have to see, they don't have the, you know, the responsibility to see her in person because she places that responsibility outside. And then add into that, right? If they're doing the work, they see the results of their hard work, that internal locus of control. Now they're, you know, that self-efficacy comes up. Like, so the the business model feeds the results the same way the actual intervention does. 
exactly like and i think that's such a like i i screwed up initially like when i started to run the hybrid stuff because in my head if like someone tells me to do something to get better i'm gonna do it i'm not gonna question like yeah, i'm just gonna do what, though i'm the same i'm, I'm gonna do whatever way. yeah I, well, i'm gonna do whatever i have to do to get better right so i sold somebody on this like thing i'm like hey like you run a like a company like you're getting on upon your busy season you don't have time to come see me i'm gonna give you all the shit you can do at home you just do it and mm-hmm. like okay yeah you know i'll do it to get better and then like I wasn't great about like following up with them because in my mind, like at that time, I'm like, everybody functions like me. Like they're just going to do the stuff to get better. And then I get a text message like from him like three weeks later. And he was like, Hey man, like I haven't been doing any of this stuff. I just wanted to let you know. And I'm like, well, what the fuck? Like you said, you wanted to get better. And that's when I started to realize like not everybody like functions like me. Right. And then we get to the coach cat or not to the coach to Cavs mastermind. Mm-hmm. and we start going over like in our little small group breakouts like yeah you actually have to keep people accountable right and that was just such a big mind shift for me so that's why i've started to like stay on top of that a little bit more but even when i break down my like after my first deployment i say hey we have two routes we can go you can either go in person or you can go hybrid like if we go hybrid like you have to do everything like on your own and you need to make sure that you're doing it i'll check up on you but if you feel like you're not a thousand percent committed that you're going to do everything i tell you to do at home don't waste it like don't buy it because i don't care about the money like i care about you getting better like nothing pisses me off more than like me taking your money and you not getting the result the accountability piece is something that whenever i have a coach come to me looking to you know either honestly a lot of people come to me to restructure their business models because most online coaches suck at business and the number one barrier to online coaching, whether it be rehab, training, nutrition, whatever is adherence, because you're not necessarily front of mind as the coach. They don't, unless you do something within your business model to be on their shoulder all the time, or at least give the perception that you're on their shoulder all the time, they're not going to do what you want them to do. And there's a few ways you can do that. Like the number one way is pricing. Like if you make it expensive enough that it hurts, they're going to do it. Mm. But in order to make it expensive enough that it hurts, you have to be able to prove you can get them results and have them trust you in that process. So one thing, you know, one thing we did with Danny is we raised her prices. And I, I, I'm, I have no problem saying it on here. Her and I have talked about it. Um, you know, because of the conversion rate from USD to CAD, I pay Danny almost 900 bucks a month. But I value being pain-free and training because it's really important to me. And I know Danny can get me results. Hmm. So I have no problem paying that money. And I think that's the, like the thing that I've kind of realized now is like when I first got started out, it's like you're trying to take everybody because you're broke. Like <laughs> you need to get paid. You need a paycheck. So I was taking in all these people and it was like, you know, great because i'm getting paid but i was also valuing myself so low because i'm like you know if i'm not that expensive people will come to see me and like i was i would say i was a little bit more expensive than most but i'm probably not what i worth what i was charging no, um, I, would say, I would agree with that yes so like now that i've like upped my i just continue to keep upping like my pricing structure and i've actually been getting like more and more people and i'm also getting like the right people like the people that yeah, are you're getting, getting higher quality people yeah um, and then which is great so i can actually focus on the shit that i care about and not have to be like counting them 24 7 yep and not only that like the quality of your service can go up because you don't need to work with as many people to be able to pay your bills right 
And the, you know, and as that quality of service comes up, then it feeds forward into the business model and, and everything you're able to do. And I mean, I don't want to get into that too, too much, but I think it, it, it's a good lesson for any of the coaches listening that to some extent, your price does position you in a way to attract the actual people that you want to be working with. And I think one of the things that, um, that we talked about in the business mastermind is you know, the balance that has to be struck because one of the big things that you want to be able to do within your practice is offer care to people who can't necessarily afford it. Right. But if you were charging those people who could afford it enough, you could subsidize your rates for those people who couldn't. Yeah. And I think that was, that was kind of the unlocking thing. So I, I love that. Uh, I love that we were able to, to get into that. So coming back to the rehab, Getting that buy-in, what would you say has been the most impactful thing for you in your evolution as a clinician? To getting the buy-in? No, just in general, to getting the results. Uh, to getting the results, um, I would say one, yeah, mix of that buy-in. So I kind of run like a, call it like a 3D system. Like when someone first comes in, like I de-escalate the situation because you're coming in to see me. You don't like, you know what's going on, but you don't really know what's going on because you've never met me in person usually like for the right. first time, right? So they're kind of nervous. They're like, I don't know what I'm getting into. I'm going to pay this money, you know, to hope that this person can fix me. I don't know what they're like. So my whole like goal is to de-escalate the situation. Like ask them closed-ended questions that they know the answer to, right? Because now I'm starting to get into... Like one, it's jogging their memory. So it's prepping them for the history that I'm about to take. So they're already knowing the answers to the questions, which builds their self-confidence, right? So it's a little bit of a psychological tactic, right? And then I might like joke around with them, talk a little shit. How I am like on this is how I am with everybody I work with. Like I'm pretty candid. Um, From there, like I get the details. So that's where we go into the history of stuff. And I really dive deep into what's going on. Like, I want to know your sleep. I want to know about your period. I want to know about like literally everything. Tell me anything and everything because it's only going to give me a better, you know, idea of what's going on, which gets you a better result. Right. And then the last is decipher. So I need to take all the details that you gave me, decipher what's going on, and then tell it back to you in a story form and how it's all connected, like based upon the table tests your history, subjective, objective measures, and then, you know, cultivate the story and then tell it back to you. That's how I get buy-in. And people are like, okay, I like you within the first appointment. I've had people. So when I worked in insurance model for this other company, we would get referrals from other doctors in town and we would like, people would be pissed off that they got sent to us. They'd be like, I don't want to see you. And these people would be like, fuck it. I'm not paying. Like, I don't want to be here. And they would literally tell our front desk staff this, right? They were pissed off that they had to come here and they would leave the, like they would leave with me. And they would come to the front desk staff, like all smiles, and then like book out some appointments because I'm just so good at cracking people and just being a little shithead, right? And getting people to like me, like no matter how much of a dickhead I am, like we can just find a common ground to bond because you're talking to like a real person. And I think that's missed with so many clinicians is like the over-professionalist, like, and I'm the same degenerate in the clinic as I am in real life. Like you people get People like you real get. people. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing. Um... But then from there, like the the techniques and everything that I've used, like I've kind of, I've learned so many different systems and all the principles are kind of the same, like they overlap. Yeah. So you don't need to know like all 10 million different methods. It's just know the principles. 
because I can look at someone I'd say like this person's going to respond to more of like a PRI based approach, like for their hip. And this other person's going to respond to like an anatomy and motion, like just based upon, you know, foot structure, bone structure, whatever is going on. So it's, it's helpful to learn all the systems. So that way you can kind of pick and choose, but then you'll also just find the underlying principles. And then from there, you can just kind of create your own system. And I've broken things down into like my rehab process. It just entails fatigue, speed, and load, just those three things. So I look at something and I go, okay, like what's the fatigability of it? Like initially, like this might be a good thing to train because it's not, you know, too hardcore. Um, obviously like the load, like, so these are literally the three things that get you injured when you're fatigued, you get caught in shitty positions, mm -hmm. right? Which you know, biomechanically, like it's inefficient. You're going to expose yourself like to an injury risk. The faster you do something like the more force you're also putting through your joints. Right. right? So there's less room for error. And then the heavier you go, like no one gets hurt on a 20 rep max with like 15 reps in reserve. But if I do a one RM all out and I get folded, I'm getting fucked up. Right. So fatigue, speed and load is how I program things. And I kind of use it as like a vertical integration. We train all of these qualities at once. Right. It's just right. what's my emphasis at this time. And people are like, that makes no sense. Because when you go to like physical therapy school or chiropractor or whatever, like in rehab process, you learn like. We do our fatigue stuff first and then we kind of work into like high rep stuff and then we get into a little bit heavier and then we get into like plyo stuff and then we get into like speed work. And it's like, well, if you just did all the shit at once and just a graded exposure from like a smart standpoint, like you don't have to then segmentalize it and then wait eight weeks or 12 weeks to get better. When I just trained all the qualities at once, now we're back in half the time. That's why I've been able to cut down like my rehab times with people like so drastically and we beat the we always beat the natural history is because we're training all qualities at once. So that way I don't have to take an individual block of however many weeks to train this back up so they can get back on the field. How do you balance? And this is something that I've been really wanting to ask because you're clearly a tough motherfucker to play rugby with a fractured femur. You have to be a little crazy. Oh yeah. How do you balance that? with also relating to that person in pain i mean i've been there i've been on both sides of the spectrum of being batshit crazy and just running through a wall and i also stand like understand how much it sucks to be in pain and dig yourself into a deep hole so i think like since i've lived that experience people can kind of relate a little bit better within that but at the same time my my ability to feel sorry for you is not going to be necessarily like the same as like, you know, up here, like I'm going to be hard on you, but I also give a shit because I've been there. But since I've been there, I can also be a little bit harder on you. All right. So I think that's where people are. And again, it comes back to like the buy-in, but they kind of understand that. And sometimes I'll tell the stories about myself of like, oh yeah, I went through, like, I had this, I have this. And they're like, oh, and you're like, fine. And I'm like, relatively not all in the head, but like, yeah, I'm okay. Um, and I think that helps uh, like a bunch with people. And it's, and I think a lot of times we just baby people like in the rehab process, like someone's like, Oh, like I had uh, the, I had someone in the other day, they had a uh, basketball player had a Jones fracture. They put a pin through his foot, you know, to heal it. And it's been eight weeks and he's out of the boot now. And I'm like, well, what's it like? Do you get pain or, you know, what are you feeling? And he's like, yeah, I just feel a lot of pressure when I stand. And I'm like, okay, is it painful? He's like, it's just like pressure. I'm like, okay, stay on your left foot. Cause that's his one where he has the pin in. And I'm like, you feel the pressure? He's like, yeah, I feel a lot of it. I'm like, all right, stand on your right foot. What do you feel? Pressure. I'm like, so they feel the fucking same as what you're telling me. And he was like, 
oh yeah i guess so i'm like so is pressure pain he's like no i'm like well why the fuck are you worried about it then you're stressing me out just stressing about it <laughs> so it's like <laughs> it's just, it's really just getting through to people and understanding like their terms and their language too yeah. and i think that's a big thing um like communication isn't about what you say it's about what they hear so if you're telling me one thing well, i'm assuming exactly. something different like you know it's it's gonna be all fucked up and i actually found a perfect meaning for that to throw into my lectures now because there was a there was like a couple sitting by the fire and the fire starting to go low and the husband looks at the wife and he's like, can you put another log on that? So it doesn't go out. And the, the lemon just takes a shit on the fire, like just dropping a log on it. So like, make sure you, you're using the right verbiage. Everyone's on the same page with what we're saying. Yeah. I found for me, it's something that I, I initially struggled with quite a bit as a younger coach because I was like, the first time I squatted 800 pounds, I couldn't walk downstairs, but I squatted 800 pounds. Yeah. That's what's so important to be in pain to me didn't matter. And that's the conversation I have with so many people. Like I've talked to other therapists and, you know, someone comes in, they're like, well, yeah, they only hurt if they bench 225. I'm like, well, how about the pain? They're like, oh, it's one out of two. I'm like, fuck it, dude. I'll take that all day long. I'd rather be in pain and still hit my numbers rather than feel hundred percent and not lift shit. And I think that's where people yeah. connect with me really well because I've played through all the injuries. And I had an honest conversation with somebody like I would say 95, probably 99% of people would not have cleared this kid to play in a football game because his ankle, he came into me like could not walk. And he had his coach called me Wednesday. I got him in on Thursday and they had to play on Friday. This kid like could not walk. And they were like worried he might have had like a fracture or like some torn ligaments in the ankle. And I did like my little, you know, chiropractic, like which doctor voodoo magic on him, got him to where he could jog. I said, FaceTime me tomorrow morning. I want you to run sprints. Tell me how it feels. He says, I feel good. And I said, okay, tape it up. It's going to hurt like a motherfucker. You're not going to like, I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you just break your shit. That's it. Right. And even then, like, this is a playoff game. If you lose, you're out of the season anyway. So what difference does it make? Right. 99% of people would have been like, no, don't let him play because he could do more damage. I look at it as like, you're going to go into your off season anyways, and I'm just going to fix what's broken if it's broken. Like, it's really that simple. Like, I, I can build that. you back up, no problem. Like, but you need to get recruited. You need that scholarship. And I had another kid who was a baseball player. He was going into a showcase camp. His shoulder was hurting him. We did some stuff to rehab him back. I mean, the kid throws, you know, 93, 94. So he's pumping some heat, but he wants the scholarship. And, uh, you know, it did some, I'm like, here's the little rehab warm up. You're going to go through to throw, like you need to do it right before you get out and you take your reps, like, cause they have like six throws that they have to do from the outfield. Um, and I said, I want you taking like three, four Advil before you go out there. So you numb it up a little bit and you don't feel shit. Right. We'll deal with it afterwards. You're going to be sore as hell tomorrow. That's okay. You come in on Monday and I'll fix it up. And sure enough, he went out there, balled out, was a little sore on Sunday, but it got a scholarship offer out of it. And I think that's where people aren't willing to push those boundaries because at the same time, like if you, if it shit goes wrong, like you, you know, you're in some deep shit, but I've also played at those levels and I've played through those injuries to know, like, it's okay to play through this. It's just going to hurt versus like, this will end your career. And there's times where I pulled people out and I go, this one will I was end just, your I was just going to say, so, you know, I wanted to bridge, bridge the conversation towards, you know, let's flip the script and say, they're like, you're going to get an athlete like me who will literally put his head through a wall to the point where, 
you know, like that's the reason I hired Danny is because I couldn't do what I wanted to do anymore. Um, how do you, how do you bring it back? Like you're working with, you're working with UFC fighters, right? Like that's, that's the definition of a high level UFC fighter is that person who will literally rip their body apart. How do you, how do you, how do you kind of find that balance? For those, it's a bit of a calculated risk. Like what is like the overall, like if I go and I say, you're not going to like, I know we're not going to win. That's when we pull back. Right. Or I know Mm -hmm. if I hit this lift, I'm pretty much done competing for the next eight months. And I go, are you willing to take the next eight months off of lifting? If you just reframe it into that mindset, they're going to be like, fuck no, I don't want to do that. Right. Right. So if you put it into the terms of their sport, rather than be like, well, this is really going to fuck you up and you might need surgery. Right. Who cares? I'll go get the surgery. If I break a world record, I'll live with that all day long. Right. But if I say, Hey, you're not going to lift, you know, for the next 12 months, you're like, no, that sucks. I don't want to do that. So it's more so framing it into like their sport, speaking their language rather than, you know, saying, oh, you're just going to be banged up and you're not going to be able to do whatever you want to do for a while. Like speaking to them like a doctor would, mm. because there's no connection there. They've never been through like what you've been through or they don't compete at the level that you compete at. So what do they know about that sport? And I think that's also a big frustration is like you go to these sports med doctors and it's like they don't know about your sport. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, oh, your shoulder hurts when you throw a baseball. Oh, let's look at your shoulder. Maybe it's the fact that your left hip is like fucked and it has no internal rotation. So you're now you're just opening up your front side and just cranking <laughs> through the front of your shoulder. Right. But that's not what they're trained for. No. Well, and I mean, that that brings it back full circle to the beginning of our conversations. Like if, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. Right. If all you have, if you, all you have is a scalpel, you're just going to want to cut into stuff. And so I think what sets, you know, it's been a common theme throughout our conversation of, are you able to think in parallel, find those common threads between the different approaches, integrate them into a system that works for you, and then have the ability to speak to people in a way they understand what you're saying, internalize it, and can ultimately make their own decisions to put themselves in the best position possible. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, Okay, we're going to finish up with some quick hit questions that have nothing to do with what we just talked about. Perfect. Eh, Maybe one of them does. (laughs) I like to get a bit ridiculous on this podcast. Um, What is the most ridiculous thing that you have ever advised an athlete to do? That I've ever advised an athlete to do? Um. My Instacart just got delivered to my neighbor. As I'm like watching out my window, the Instacart just got delivered to my neighbor. (laughs) Um, Whatever I've told an athlete to do. Um, Supplement protocols that are, let's say like big boy supplements um, that are highly frowned upon that most doctors will never touch upon, like and how to actually, you know, take them for a said injury and how Mm. to do them right. Um, I think that's very taboo, like with a lot of people, um, they'll be like, Oh, don't touch it. Just stay away from it. I'm like, well, this would actually speed up your injury. Like the healing process. If you take it right. Right. So I've advised some people to take some, uh, some, you know, in non-tested events, we're not cheating untested events. Um, 
ironically enough, I feel like everything's technically like untested now. I had a there's a guy that was fighting in the PFL and the, he was fighting another guy that was just fucking roided out of his mind. And when the guys came backstage to get tested, like they pulled the guy that I worked with and not the guy who was on steroids. Like there's an obvious difference of like one dude's just like walking around like Vitor Belfort back in the day. And then like my guy who's got some size, but he's not looking like that. That's so funny. Um, I mean, yeah, politics <laughs> definitely come into play. Like, listen, I, I always had this conversation around CrossFit just back in the day. Like Rich Froning's on steroids. I was like, do you think if he tested positive, that CrossFit would tell anybody that their poster child was on steroids? No way, man. Not a chance. Not a fucking chance. They picked picked the Canadian chick from Calgary who finished seventh and they popped her. Yeah. Like they always pull someone who's like not going to be on the card anyway, like with fighters. And what's funny is like if you go through like the USADA list at the time and look to pop positive, it'd be like all of your favorite fighters. But the thing you don't realize though is that they only fight two to three times a year. So if your suspension is three months, it's not affecting your fight camp or even the next fight that you're gonna take. Like so if you get off season tested and you pop positive, like what's the big deal? You just make your off season get a let go by the take more. Yeah. <laughs> um what is one album you could listen to with no skips? Uh, Wyatt Flores' new album. I think it's Life Lessons. I've honestly been listening to it every day, like on repeat for the, probably the last, like, I think he came out with it maybe three weeks ago. And I think what kind of music is it? Uh, it's like, it's, I guess it's country music, but it's not like, uh, like, I, you know, my dog ran away, my wife left me type of thing. Like, it's more of like, uh, you know, like Tyler Childers, like old school Tyler Childers and like Sturgill Simpson. It's more of like that kind of vibe. I dig it. I dig it. So I'm a big fan of his. Do you crack an egg on the side of a pan or on the corner of something? No, I do it on the stove. Like I'll hit it a on flat the countertop. Surface. Yeah, I'll hit it on a flat surface and then just puncture my thumb and then separate it. Good man. Kind of a psychopath about that. Last question of the podcast. If there's one person that you could see on this podcast, but the caveat is, is you have to help me get them on, who would it be? Oh, um... Shit, there's a couple of good ones. Selfishly, I'm going to say this one person because I love listening to him talk. But sometimes it's like, I think it's going to be hard to get him. Actually, I don't think it'll be too hard. He might be open to it. Um, I actually talked about him in my seminar or in the talk at Coach Caps thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Evan Pycon, just because he is an absolute genius. Um, the way that he approaches everything is just so methodical um especially from like the training even like the lifting side of things like getting into how he structures his programming and his auto regulation is like beyond fascinating but then you get into his devices like his wearable tech like the nox and all that stuff you get into some really cool stuff looking at you know nitric oxide and oxygen saturation desaturation levels within the blood and the muscles it's super cool how to like kind of inform from the training so i'll have to do my research before yeah dude it's uh he's Put it this way. I had a conversation with him like probably over COVID when I was like really diving into. So I learned Joel Jamison stuff for conditioning for fighters mm-hmm. and went through that. And then I went through Evan's stuff after that because I just went down this rabbit hole of conditioning and I came across Evan. And um, pretty much it was like, take everything you know and realize that 
you don't know anything like none of it's actually true and then you start diving deep into his concepts and you're like holy shit and it got to the point where i had a call with him and i was too afraid to ask a question because i was like this is going to sound so stupid it's probably the simplest thing in the world to him but like it's probably like you know the most complex of the world thing like for me and i was so mm-hmm. afraid to ask him a question and it's one of those where like people like i don't know if you ever had someone like ask you a question you kind of like pause and you're like like because it's kind of a dumb question but i'll answer it anyway all the time dude he hit he hit me like with one of those and i was like fuck i knew it was a dumb question but he was just so nice about it but like just such a smart guy fascinating mind and his book is phenomenal i highly recommend people pick it up is he the guy who made it okay for you to program eight hours of cardio for somebody no i think the most i talked with somebody else and i said that i think the most they ever put someone out was like six but I've read like some endurance books like uh, Skiba's work and a few others, and they've got some crazy ones. Guys are hitting like 14, 16 hours a week of like high. Like, like fighters are? Not fighters, but these are like, I mean, it's like true like endurance based athletes, but there's sometimes they're like a mix of them. Um, no, I think the most I've put a fighter on, I think was like that eight that we talked about, but that was because it was like concussion protocol and a whole host of other things. That's so fascinating. When you said that, I was just like, I put my pen down and I was like, really it's honestly not as bad as people think like you can just hop on a bike and just do a nice but i mean you're not crushing yourself it's not like you want to go for five zone system it's not like zone four like three four or five you're literally just chilling out like zone one and zone two like your heart rate might be 105 and you're just walking or riding the bike for an hour and a half and you do that like five times and i can't do math to save my life but i'm going to round that off and say it's eight hours a week or something like that that's ridiculous. I'm doing like, oh, I'm doing like 200 minutes of cardio right now. And I'm like, ugh. yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny though. Like, cause I, I've got some guys where we put them through a workout um, and they come in, they're like, this is the hardest thing like, I've ever done. Like, and they're just completely shot. And then you have like my guys who have been doing just a, like, we haven't even touched this one style of training. We've just been doing a whole bunch of other different forms of like lower level cardio. And then we get into the high level stuff and they smash it. Right. And the guys are like, what the hell? And I'm like, honestly, if you just build the base up, like your life becomes so much easier. I had a guy, he had a fight, but he was going, he was going to get married because his wife was um, probably butchering it. I think they were from Hong Kong. Mm. So he flew out there and I was like, all I want you to do, I was like, you have six hours a week of literally just jogging, biking or swimming. That's it. Your heart rate's not to go above like 125. And he did that. And came back and we put him through the same workout that he like almost threw up in before he left and absolutely smoked it. And it was like, I could do like five more rounds of this. That's something that I try to like hammer home with, especially with lifters. It's like, listen, man, if you're going to get tired after a set of five, how much training volume do you think you're going to be able to accumulate? Exactly. None. So if we do a little bit of cardio, Again, zone one or two, a good amount of steps per day, and a little bit of zone two, your strength is going to go through the roof. Your ability to adapt is going to go through the roof. Your ability to assimilate nutrients is going to go through the roof. It's just such a low-hanging fruit that people completely ignore because of specificity. Yeah. And what's crazy is like your body doesn't give a shit about the specificity. No. In regards to literally anything like macronutrients like the food that you get it from i mean you can get into like some of the minor details of it but like you know steak versus a hamburger it's still like you know protein still the same in there like Mm -hmm. your body doesn't give a shit about the specificity but yet for some reason we take it to training like 
it's got to be the most specific thing in the world. And it's like, your body doesn't really respond to that. And that's also what Evan Pycon like helped me realize too. I was like, should all of our conditioning come from just hitting the heavy bag and doing some things like that? Because then it doesn't translate if we do a bunch of airdyne intervals and then go into the cage and they still gas out. And he's like, at the end of the day, like a car engine is still a car engine. Like fuel is still the fuel. Like you need to look at the other factors, like what's his tactical approach, what's you know going on psychologically that might be, you know, inhibiting his performance or whatever. I'm like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do is actually like just go in the basement because we have a home gym. I have an Airdyne and I'll set up like a couple of kettlebells, a landmine. And I'll do like two minutes very easy on the Airdyne. And then I'll go swing my kettlebell around, hop back on the Airdyne for a couple of minutes, go do some landmine stuff. It doesn't matter what you're doing as long as your heart rate stays in the point that it's supposed to be at for the prescribed amount of time. And then you can just walk away and be fine with it. Yeah. And that's like the other thing too, is like when you get into some of the occlusion like stuff, like as long as the flow is super easy, I think it's that like, there's a research paper uh, like published on this actually. And I think it was like, if you go above maybe like 70 or yeah, I think it's like 75% of a one RM, like you get a decoupling like of heart rate, like from yes. like what it would be in regards to cardio. So as long as you stay like below that threshold, like you can do, your, you know, your kettlebell circuits or whatever else or whatever lift that you want to do. As long as you stay within that, like you'll get the adaptation. I feel like we could talk for hours, but um, <laughs> dude, I really appreciated this. And uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and hearing more about like, you know, just how your mind works. And uh, I really hope that this next year you start to put out some more information and get your spread your message out to the people. Yeah, that's the goal. Kind of hop on a few more stages, talk some shit to people, Love be it. as sarcastic as possible. Love it. Um, so everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Please make sure to like, share, subscribe, and support the podcast with the sponsors in the description. Dylan, thank you for joining and look forward to chatting more with you. Yeah, Thanks for having me on, man. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.